Hey guys, what is up? Welcome back to the channel. It is yours truly, Crystal Leandra. Today's going to be a paranormal podcast. For those of you that are brave enough to join the circle, it is the Ghost Girl Diaries podcast. Today's going to be a interesting one. This is going to be a podcast about shadow work, what it is. And, you know, I feel like even when I was doing my shadow work in the past, you know, I started uh, probably around 2018. I didn't, there wasn't a ton of resources at that time. And I feel like some of the easiest ways to explain what shadow work is, is to give you examples of it. So today I'm going to be talking about my shadow side and some things are in my book. Some things are not in my book. Um, some things I'm saving for another book that I'm writing but I want to touch base with you guys and kind of share my story so that you understand sort of where I'm coming from and, and how I healed through my own personal shadow. And it can be a little bit complicated because there's lots of layers and it kind of start, starts with um, generational trauma, right? But I first want to sort of recap on the last podcast, which was talking about the law of attraction and that you are in control of your reality. And where we sort of ended was you have the power to raise the vibration, right? You have the, the power to raise your own life vibration and attract whatever it is you want. And one of the things that I talked about in that podcast was doing shadow work. And I want to share a couple of things before we go into shadow work. I found a couple of really good videos from Dolores Cannon and Bashar, and I want to just play them really quickly so that you can kind of um, understand, you know, where we're headed with all of this discussion. I'm sure that you guys by now have looked up both of them. These are very short blurbs that I just feel like are really important for you to sort of tuck in the back of your mind so that you can remember it. Um, for later, whether you're doing the law of attraction or shadow work. I just want you to remember sort of what a powerful being you are. And this still dips back into me going to the other side so often and experiencing it. Um, someone asked me a question that I, I felt like I needed to touch base on, which is what's it like when you die? What's it like when you go to the other side? Like I have and I found, I'm not sure who spoke on this, but there was another, there was a spiritualist that talked about this. And I think it, it may have been Bashar, it may have even also been Dolores Cannon, but don't quote me on that. But when I wake up on the other side, which I literally was there the other night, I mean, I go almost every other night, every couple of nights, it feels like this life is a dream. So when you die, like when your body eventually gives out and you do go to the other side, when your consciousness goes back to your higher self, it will feel like living on this planet and everything you experienced on this planet was nothing but a dream. And I know that sounds crazy. It's sort of like when you have dreams at nighttime and you're, you know, if you remember your dreams at all, even if they're little and you wake up and you're like, whoa, that was like such an intense dream. I remembered everything. It's literally the same once we cross over to the other side. 
And I think that's what's really hard for people to comprehend too, when you're sort of in between worlds. And I say that like, even in your family has crossed over and they're like, why aren't they visiting me all the time? And why aren't they, why did they just like move on and go on and forget about me? Well, because they have to continue their life on the other side. They, they are busy. They're like, think about how busy you are in your day-to-day life. They are just as busy on the other side. They're visiting family. They're doing whatever their path is to do on the other side. So it's not that they haven't forgotten you. It's just that they have their own life. They still have to live. It still continues on, right? Okay, let's play a couple of clips. Um, I'm going to do a few of Bashar. I'm not, they're not going to be very long, but I do want you to listen to them. If you start defining that idea in a negative way, even though it's a natural mechanism, you will start to experience the negative effects of defining it that way. And it turns into depression instead of compression. Thank you. So this is similar. This is why we say it is so absolutely crucial to pay attention to how you define things. Listen to your definitions. Really pay attention to what's going on when you have an experience, catch yourself, catch yourself when you label something negatively. This is different from recognizing, simply objectively recognizing that somebody may be doing something negative, mechanistically speaking. The idea though is to catch yourself for not assuming that something is simply automatically negative. Okay, so this is law of attraction stuff. At any given moment, what it is you need to know to become more of who you truly are. A twin flame can do the same thing, but we understand that you can also see the concept of a twin flame as the idea of the oversoul creating very specific incarnations that interact with each other on a certain frequency level that creates or contains the potential for the highest amount of reflectivity back and forth to allow each other to grow. So it's almost like you're vibrating in each other's fields because you contain similar frequencies. It's almost in a sense like you sense it's one thing being split in two. It is two things. Each is independent, but they are so geared, so harmoniously vibrating together, so much so on a similar frequency that they can't appear to be split offs of one thing, which ultimately... Okay, now I'm going to go into another law of attraction one. It works. You understand that you have already a core natural vibration that represents the unique you that you are, yes? Yes. That core frequency beams from you all the time, just like a lighthouse beacon. You can't help it. You're always radiating that core vibration that represents the true natural you. Everything, everything that is in alignment and is reflective of that core vibration is doing its best to get to you. Everything that is not representative of that core true vibration is doing its best to get as far away from you as it possibly can. So what he's saying with this is, you know, when you lose people or you have to let go of things that no longer serve you, it is to make room for what you are already vibrating at. So you can't get upset when you lose people, lose things, lose jobs because it's because those things weren't meant to be in your path. He's essentially saying that there's a lesson in everything. You just have to be able to see it as a positive thing. The world, you simply take yourself, you shift yourself to another series of parallel realities that are already more representative 
of the vibrational change within yourself, which means that that parallel earth simply already contains versions of all the other people that have also shifted themselves to that parallel reality that you've agreed will be your new mass conscious expression experience. Now, a couple other things that I want to talk about. There's one really important one here that talks about sort of how important that you are. And I think that's important for you to hear. Because every single one of you that are on Earth now in some way, shape or form chose to be on Earth now because you knew that you would be going through a transition and a transformation at this time in your planet's history. And on some level, in some way, you wanted to participate. You wanted to be a part of that because it's a very exciting place to be right now. As you say in your language, it's where it's happening. It is one of the most highly focused places right now that we are aware of in creation for the idea of transition and transformation. It is one of the few places that has gone as deeply into the dark as you have that we are aware of. And thus then when a planet, when a civilization, when a collective consciousness can allow itself to experience such a great degree of darkness and yet still find its way to the light, that is special. That is powerful. And believe me, you attract the attention of many other beings from many other dimensions to see how you did it, how you're doing it, because that's exciting, because that's creation in the making. That's raw creation, going from absolute dark to absolute light, creation in a nutshell which is pretty fascinating to me and i he also goes on to talk about how the dark side of humanity the things we see the murder the death just all the dark stuff the earth is essentially purging humanity is essentially purging because it's getting ready to shift into a new dimension a new reality and it has to basically get out all of the bad first which is why we're witnessing so much bad i mean you look at millennials and i'm i'm a millennial and we always make jokes about like oh my god like we've had enough trauma we've had enough generational trauma but essentially he's saying it's because this purge has to happen in order to shift into a better higher form of consciousness okay so i want to talk about shadow work now and I want to just kind of skim the surface of what it is. So essentially everyone has a shadow self and that shadow self comes in many forms. It can come from any kind of experience, trauma that you've had in your life, right? And your shadow side is the dark side, which is the side that when you get with a partner, you get with a married, you know, you're married and, and a happy couple and you say, don't, whatever you do, don't abandon me because I have abandonment issues from my dad. Okay. What that says to me is that rather than fixing your own abandonment issues and healing them within you, you have now put it off to your partner's problem. You're now putting, you know, certain requirements on your partner in order for the relationship to work because you have trauma and you have been traumatized rather than doing the inner healing. And, you know, the unfortunate part about shadow work and trauma is that there's a lot of unhealed people walking around. Like I think the majority of the population is very, very much unhealed. And I mean, this includes, you know, our external, external world too. If you think about the 3d, one thing I've learned about being on the other side with my guides is they say, you know, don't get too caught up in the 3d. And that means like the external world of politics and, you know, all of the traumatic stuff that's going on in Ukraine, like, 
if you get so caught up in that, it's going to cause a very like heavy shadow kind of overshadowing you as a person. And it's going to cause depression, anxiety, and you're not going to be able to function in your own internal reality that you're trying to create. So yes, it's important to be passionate about external things that are going on in our world around us. However, you don't want to get too caught up in it because you're going to forget your own soul's mission. So external, the external world of 3D can also cause its own shadow, which is just really crazy to think that we incarnated having to sort of fight our way out of all of these, you know, traumatic experiences that we had, whether it be family, let it be, um, you know, the collective, let it be generational trauma, et cetera, et cetera. So the shadow form sort of um, deep shadow wounds are from rejected aspects of your childhood. So it's when you were a child and your main care caregivers were not giving you certain things that you needed. There could have been some sort of abuse that resulted in that and it caused some sort of dark attachment style and that sort of unfolds in all kinds of different ways. And you can, you know, sort of really become the victim easily, right? And you can cause a lot of blame on other people. And I think that having a really hard upbringing or a dark shadow can cause other things like addiction. Um, you know, you can also perpetuate the cycle. You have children and then you off put your, you know, shadow into those children. And now they're going to grow up with generational trauma because it just continues to like go in this huge ball of karma, right? And that's another reason why it's so important to stop it with shadow work is you're going to, you're going to cause generational karma if you don't. And I think there's a book that I read somewhere and it said it takes between five to eight, five to eight generations for someone to come in and be a generational curse breaker. Because essentially at the end of the day, any of the trauma we've experienced ourselves is also off put from our parents or our caregivers who also had trauma, Right who put it onto us and we put it onto our kids and our kids put it onto them. So it just, it's a, it's the wheel of karma, which is the really big problem that humans have on this planet is you get stuck on this wheel of karma and you know, you, you have that mentality of an eye for an eye. They did it to me. I'm going to do it back. Or I never healed myself, which causes me to have like anger issues and possible even mental illness and look, I, I'm not talking about like, if you're on like depression meds or something like that's still self-help. Like if you if you've been diagnosed with something like and you're you're seeking help, that's still self-help. OK, so I'm not pointing the finger at any medical issues here. Like I really don't want to, you know, any backlash from that. I'm talking about just strictly shadow work, what the concept is, how it happens and sort of how you heal from it. The big question is, is does everyone have a shadow? I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, you can do things like therapy. You don't have to do shadow work. Like it's not required. However, for me, I guess the short answer for me is like, no one understands your trauma like you. Like I've gone to many therapists over the years and I've, I've done group therapy. I've done everything I can to try to like better myself with self-help. And at the end of the day, the thing that helped me the most was shadow work because no one was going to understand my trauma the way I did because everyone's trauma is a very unique experience. Nobody's going to understand you. You're going to search far and wide for someone that has had the same, you know, experiences as you. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, you can take two people with the same kind of trauma, but they both had two very separate realities and experiences on it. So that's why I think shadow work is, is so, so important. Um, I'm just going through here. 
So it sort of starts as an exploration, like a question and answer sort of um, way of dealing with shadow work, which is when you get triggers or you get triggered by something externally, rather than getting angry or mad or sad or depressed or anxious, you tap in, like you literally have that little voice in your head that says, okay, why am I getting mad? Why am I getting anxious? Why am I getting upset? Like, and you get to the root of the problem. So it is a lot of thinking. It's a lot of internal dialogue to try to sort of, you got to think of like your insides as like this big rat's nest of a ball of yarn. And now we're going to try to undo the yarn so that it's really organized and we understand why and how we react to certain things. Um, why do you do shadow work? Tapping into your intuition. Cause I think once you get rid of all of this dark mucky stuff that you've been through and you heal from it or heal through it, um, you're able to really listen to your intuition better because you know yourself better than you ever have. And you're more in tap and in tune with yourself than you've ever been. You get to free yourself from that shadow. So rather than just constantly sticking things under the rug that are bad, bad things that happen to you, you're sort of kind of grabbing the shadow by the throat saying like, I'm going to cope with this. I'm going to deal with this now. And it's a complicated process. It's not easy. I don't think it's ever really fully done. Like I talk about, I still have things that pop up on my shadow side, but I'm actively dealing with it constantly because I don't want to like, when I first started doing shadow work, my opinion on it was this, wow, baggage is heavy. Like we all have baggage. We all have trauma from what we lived through. Why do I want to keep carrying this around for the rest of my life? Like, this is heavy. Go put it down. Like, go get rid of the trash. You know, how do I start doing that? Um, the next thing what shadow work does is it causes you to empower yourself. And you're also accepting your strengths and even your weaknesses. But through your weaknesses and your low self-esteem, you sort of understand, how can I fix that? How can I make myself a better person? How can I work through my weaknesses? Um, and you're also taking a step towards self-actualization, watching your triggers, giving yourself grace, understanding, you know, yourself and, you know, kind of looking around you to see the sort of people that you've kind of attracted into your life. There's really no right or wrong way to do shadow work. You can do journaling, you can do meditation, but I do want to kind of talk about my shadow side. I think I'm going to talk about my mom's side of the family that caused me a lot of trauma growing up. And I'm going to talk about the different triggers that I had so that you can see how I dealt with it, how I healed from it. And sort of once again, self-actualization into um, how I was able to sort of move forward and fix that. Another thing with shadow work and understanding shadow work is that the story that I'm about to tell you with my own personal life, it's not everything that I went through. It's just a portion of it, but, um, I'm not looking for sympathy from anybody. I have healed through a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk to, like 99% of the stuff that I've healed through. So I'm not looking through sympathy or for sympathy. I'm only looking to tell you my story so that you can understand and maybe not feel so alone from some of the things that you've experienced. Um, and another thing is, is understanding the twin flame journey. Okay. So I am on a twin flame journey and that's, that's going to be another podcast, but listening to my story, um, twin flames incarnate with extremely complicated family situations and extreme trauma because they're known as very high vibrational beings. So when twin flames incarnate, they are purposely incarnating to break major, major generational trauma. Okay. And so my story is going to seem much worse than most of you listening. 
And I want you to know it's because I planned this is really the short answer was is once again, me going home, watching my life review, watching me plan my life, understanding the family that I incarnated into and understanding that I was coming through to break generational curses. And I, I didn't really have a choice for an easy path because I'm, I'm known as a high vibrational being on the other side. Okay. So let's go into, um, I think we need to kind of back it up first, um, by starting with a light story on my grandmother. So this is only my mother's side that we're talking about today. And I think that my dad's side I'll save for when I write a book. It's just um, a different story. It's a, just a different story, but there is trauma from that side of the family as well. So my grandmother was indigenous. Okay. She, um, is Cherokee. I am Cherokee. I've talked about this many times. I have enough Cherokee blood that I am registered with my tribe. I have been since I was born. Not everybody can register. Um, and my grandmother's family was on the trail of tears. They survived the trail of tears, which was a central genocide that stemmed from forcing the indigenous people off the land on the East coast. Predominantly my family was in Georgia and they were forced along this long path to relocate what is to be known as reservations to this day, which is in Oklahoma. So there were thousands and thousands of indigenous people in my tribe that migrated and thousands of people lost their lives due to dehydration. Uh, it was just trauma. It was just a lot of trauma. They essentially walked in on horseback from Georgia to Oklahoma and many, many did not make it. Now, somehow my family survived. So that tells you already, rather than seeing the sad side of it, which is, um, you know, oh, how sad a lot of people died. It was genocide. We're going to flip the script and say, look how strong and empowered the bloodline is that I incarnated into. That is shadow work, right? Is not seeing the sad. It's seeing the empowerment behind things. It's putting power behind things and it's validating the experience. However, it's putting power behind it. So my grandmother's family did survive. They're on something called the Dawes Rolls, which is very rare because not everyone survived, um, you know, the Trail of Tears. It was extremely traumatic, which would end up causing generational trauma to this day. It's still happening. And the generational trauma commonly that goes on to this day on uh, Indian reservations across the United States is that... Um, you know, there's a lot of fear to leave the out, leave the reservation. Like the outside world is the white people and they tried to, you know, kill all of us once they'll do it again. So don't leave. So there's a really big fear that goes on from generation to generation to sort of stay on the reservations, which are self-governed by the tribes. And oftentimes the people in the tribes are living in poverty. Um, and it's just terrible, um, circumstances. And it's really fear-based to leave because they just don't trust outsiders. And that's still very common uh, to this day. So what had happened was, you know, my grandmother was brought up in a family of like nine children. She was in a, a huge family of, of nine indigenous kids. They were extremely poor. They were extremely poor living on the reservation. She hated the holidays, my grandmother, because they were always very, very poor and broke on the holidays. And, um, you know, living on the reservation, there was no way, no, not a lot of work to even really feed your family. 
And so she had a bitter taste when it came into her mouth regarding holidays, but she always made it exceptionally great for me. But I always knew that I could see sort of the pain um, in her eyes. Now, when she was seven years old, my grandmother, she was faced with an opportunity where the United States government came to the Cherokee Reservation and said, we are putting an English speaking school on the reservation. And we are offering English and an English school to any of the children. And it's up to the children if they want to learn English. And out of my grandmother's entire family of all of those children at seven years old, she made the decision to go to the English speaking school by herself on the reservation. Now, the interesting thing behind this was she was going to have to walk there by herself every day at seven years old up until she graduated, which I believe she graduated through high school at this English speaking school. And she was also semi shunned from the family because her family spoke uh, fluent Cherokee. And remember, the outside world is bad, right? The outside world is unsafe. They've already tried to, you know, ex essentially exterminate us as a tribe. Um, and my something in my grandmother um, just decided that she knew that speaking English was going to be one of her biggest ways out of the reservation. But it's, in, it's insane to me to think back that a seven-year-old made that kind of a decision because she was so young. I mean, I can't even imagine being seven year old, years old making that decision. And her no one in the family supported her for this decision, even her parents, because they were afraid she was going to you know, forget the Cherokee language. And they were afraid that um, she would be sort of, quote, colonized and be, um, you know, removed from the tribe because of the colonization. And I think they were afraid of it. But even against her family's wishes, she did persevere and she did go to the English speaking school and she ended up teaching her entire family how to speak English, which is just crazy to me. So the entire family was bilingual English and Cherokee. Now, by the time she was 18, she had made the decision she was also going to go to college, which is insane for someone, a, a woman of color, an indigenous woman of that time in probably the 1940s to try to go to college is just insanity, right? Especially women in general didn't have a lot of rights then. Still, it was, you know, the very much uh, housewife era, right? You don't get an education, but she wanted to follow her dreams to be a model and to do fashion. And she did. She got accepted into a, a fashion institute in uh, Chicago, and she ended up leaving. But when this happened, it caused a lot of turmoil within the family because they didn't, once again, it's that same generational curse that's today. If you leave the reservation, you've been colonized and the white man is going to get you essentially. But she didn't care. She knew that the only future that she had, uh, you know, a possibility of growing was leaving, was leaving the reservation. And she was the only one out of all the kids that ended up leaving the reservation. And um, it was traumatic for her because she was definitely shunned from the family for it. Oftentimes within uh, a tribal family, they also want you to keep the, the blood pure, especially after they had experienced genocide. So she was sort of to be required in the eyes of her parents to marry another indigenous man. And while she was away at college, she met my grandfather, who was very white and very German. 
And of course, when she told them this, her family, they were also upset about this, you know, like you're being colonized, like, you know, essentially, uh, the outside world is tricking you into this. Um, you know, how could you do this to your indigenous family? You have to keep the bloodline pure. And there, she went through periods where they would shun her to the point where no communication happened and it would happen and it would, they would be okay. And then it would happen. It would be okay. Eventually she did marry my grandfather and she settled down and had three kids. So the point of bringing this up first is saying that my grandmother faced a lot of generational curses that she also had to break at that time. And my mom was next in line to start breaking the generational curses. So my grandmother did it, my mother did it, and then I've really rebelled against the generational curses I've had to face. My mom uh, was born and they had a fairly normal childhood. My grandfather made a lot of money. He actually um, made and created neon signage in the 50s and 60s. And it was a lot of money, a lot of artwork, they um, had so much money to the point where they had a nanny, a driver. Um, so my mom grew up quite privileged and very normal, beautiful, lovely childhood. My family, uh, my grandmother married my grandfather and they started their family in Missouri, um, in Kansas City, Missouri. And um, my mom, my uncle and my aunt and my mom was the middle child. And what ended up happening was um, my grandfather got sick when my mom was 13 because he had been doing these neon signs, right, for so long. And breathing in the, fu the fumes and the chemicals caused him to end up getting brain cancer. And he ended up in a very vegetative state for many years in Colorado, which is what drove them to from Missouri to Colorado. And my grandmother, you know, was definitely a 1950s, 60s housewife where she had never paid a single bill in her entire life. He was the sole provi provider of the family. And um, she had a mental breakdown and could not cope. And at that moment, my mom had to step in and essentially take over the family at the age of 13. And because of this to my, my entire family. And I mean, my broad family, she has always been seen as quote, the strong one. And she always said she just didn't have a choice. But once again, if you're looking at this from a 5d perspective, my mom incarnated with this purpose, right? So my mom was at my, you know, grandfather's uh, bedside as he was dying. And one of his final wishes to my mom was essentially always take care of your family, no matter what, that was his final wish. And at 13 years old, I think she couldn't help, but take that quite literal and take it to heart. And, um, that was her life purpose. And she ran it into the ground. So she had a lot of trauma from my grandfather dying. She had a lot of trauma from having to take care of her siblings, from having to take care of her own mother at a very young age. And her uh, childhood kind of stopped at the age of 13. So she, she definitely had some demons, I would say. Um, she didn't want a lot of responsibility. She ended up having me a little bit late in life because she didn't want the responsibility. Um, and I don't blame her. I think that she'd always sort of been parenting and momming um, everyone around her and she needed a break. So 
kind of moving forward, um, my mom had me, my dad and my mother were together for several years before they had me. And, um, my trauma started quite young. My dad had a lot of trauma. My dad had a lot of trauma. He was pretty abused, um, physically like beat up, uh, physically by his father. He'd grown up on a farm. Um, and it was just really sad, just really sad. It was a very isolated farm where that's just sort of what you did back then. I'm not saying it's okay, but like if your kids didn't work uh, appropriately on the farm, you would sort of rough them up. So my dad had a lot of demons and, um, my mom and dad fought a lot when I was a child. Um, lots of verbal altercations, getting in each other's face. And oftentimes, um, I can even remember at the age of like three, four, and five, I would stand between my parents trying to get the argument to break up, um, so that they wouldn't fight with each other. And I was never hit or anything like that. I was never hurt. But, um, what did end up happening from that was I couldn't control my environment. So the only thing that I could control was food and was my food intake. My mom was also an overeater. Um, when she would get stressed, she would eat. So I definitely picked that up from her very quickly. And essentially what this would cause for shadow work later on down the line is I would be battling a lifelong problem with um, overeating, not eating. Uh, I, I, I just had a lot of uh, eating disorder problems throughout my youth. And unfortunately, it started really young. Like, I'm not sure the age it started when I started controlling food and my intake. But I think it was somewhere between like the age of seven and nine, where I realized that good food, bad food, sugary foods gave me endorphins. And if I was sad or upset about my parents fighting, or I couldn't control them fighting, I would immediately go to the fridge. And I would eat. And I just learned this habit and it was an ongoing problem my entire life. And I had to, I recognized it in my twenties because I would get into the fad dieting, right? Like I would restrict myself even in high school when I was preparing for like a cheerleading competition or something, I knew I needed to lose weight. So I would just stop eating. I would drink like water and like, I thought that was normal. And then as soon as the competition was over, I was like, oh, I can eat again. And then now I'm stressed eating even more um, because I haven't ate and I've been depriving myself of calories. So that that was a long time. And, you know, and in the meantime of that yo-yoing back and forth with that eating disorder um, caused body dysmorphia really bad where. I, I would like, even this to this day, I'll look back at photos of myself in high school. And at that moment, I thought I was just like the size of a cow. And I was like tiny. I was like 110 pounds. And the only way I could control it in my brain was food intake. And it was really bad. It was just trauma. And I, it's so my point of this discussion is showing you how trauma manifests in different ways. So when you look or you don't feel good because you're overweight and, and you're not 
you know, I wasn't taught that exercise was a thing. Like I was involved in dance all of my life, but I was never encouraged to exercise a certain way or, you know, and just paying attention. I think my mom missed so many key signs of seeing me yo-yoing back and forth, especially in my teens of like being really skinny and then not being skinny. Like there were some really big red flags going on, but I didn't, I wasn't able to acknowledge it until I was in my twenties. And I mean, I'm still battling. I don't think it was really food addiction. Um, but I did notice when I got into like bad relationships, I would overeat, I would eat bad foods and I would overeat. And, um, I had to really get that in check. And it's, I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think that's going to, um, be something that I have to make sure that I'm really like checking in with myself when a stressful situation happens. Like, are you eating because you're hungry or are you eating because you're stressed out and you're trying to sort of fall back into really toxic patterns and habits? Um, carrying on with my youth, you know, I had a really, other than my parents fighting, my dad, um, moved far away when I was eight, but I still maintained a relationship with him, but the fighting stopped when I was eight years old. And that was really good. That was really good. But when I hit about, um, 11 to 13, a lot of things started shifting in my life. And this is because of the trauma that my mom had, and she was now putting it on to me. Okay. In her mind, which is, this is that wheel of karma that we get on as a society. In her mind, she sort of had to grow up fast at 11, 13. So now I'm going to have to grow up fast at 11, 13. Like she figured it out. So I'm sort of old enough to figure it out. And it's kind of conflicting because I love my mom. She's my best friend, but she was very unhealed. And I've gotten to a point now where I've definitely acknowledged that. She was not a bad mom. She was the best mom ever. She never missed a field trip. She, you know, provided for me. Like I didn't, I didn't go without, but she was at times not available for me emotionally or mentally because she was busy filling up other people's cups in our family, which I'm going to talk about. So 13 was a very pivotal age for me, which I talk about this in my book. I had a friend that committed suicide and um, I was beside myself. And it was a very strange time in my life. I didn't understand what suicide was. I didn't understand where he went. I didn't understand the other side. I didn't understand why he would do that. Um, I was also very much outcasted in seventh grade. And so my question was, oh, well, like, if it's that easy, I remember literally having these thoughts, like, we're in seventh grade, and he was getting bullied, and it ended up causing his suicide. Well, I was getting bullied, too. I was just at a different school. And I'm thinking, oh, well, if that's what he did to get out of the bullying, that's all I need to do to get out of the bullying. Um, it was a very strange time for me, plus not... Uh, being a little bit disconnected from my mom at that point, because we also had a lot of family troubles going on, not between her and I, but between our external family. And, um, at this point as well at 13, um, my family being indigenous and I'm not pointing the finger at any specific person because it's a, it's not every single family member, but there are many family members that, um, have turned to alcohol abuse and drug abuse in my family due to generational trauma. And it started when I was 13. 
And I had older cousins that started, you know, they say gateway drugs. I'm going to be honest. I don't know what their gateway drug was, if there was one. But throughout my indigenous family, um, a lot of my family started getting heavily into meth. And it was slowly destroying my family. Also, alcoholism was extremely predominant in my family. Not with my mom. My mother and my grandma were sober. My mother and my grandma were sober. Um, But with that came responsibility of my mother sort of having to pick up the pieces for everyone else around her. And what ended up happening was... um, Well, the alcohol started first and essentially the older cousins tried to start peer pressuring the younger cousins into drinking with them. And I was at the age of 13 when this happened. And this was a really big moment for me because not only am I kind of being bullied at school, um, I don't have really the emotional presence of my mom there for me because she's trying to rescue and save everyone else. And I also had this friend that just committed suicide. So I I'm, I'm going to be honest. I think that at this point of my life, there was probably like a 0.0% 0.01% chance of me surviving um, the outcome of the way my family was because I didn't, I, I was extremely much the black sheep and isolated. There was um, a concert that my family took me to. And I'm, I'm not even going to talk about who it was. Um, there was a concert. And the older cousins essentially took the younger cousins. It was a lot of us. There was like 15 or 20 of us. And we were at this concert. And the older cousins um, were getting totally smashed at the concert. And they were buying and handing alcohol out to all of us as youngsters, as young kids. And I remember tasting like a beer or something. I thought it was so gross. I was like, how can adults drink this? Like it's bitter and disgusting. And the problem was, is that all of my younger cousins wanted to fit in with the older cousins. So, I mean, younger than me, I was 13. So you're talking 11. I think there was even seven year olds there and everyone was getting drunk at this concert. Everyone was drunk. And the problem was, is that my younger cousins that were smaller than me were essentially babies at the time. I mean, I was too, but we're at this concert in Denver and everybody's wasted. And, you know, these little kids, their, their bladders and their kidneys cannot handle the alcohol and they have to go to the bathroom every five minutes. And because the older cousins are like gone. They're gonzo on, you know, they're like toasted. The only sober person that's there to attend to the little kids is me. So rather than watching the concert every five minutes, I'm taking one of my little cousins to the bathroom because their bladders just couldn't handle it. And I'm sitting there telling them like, please stop doing this. Like don't drink anymore. Your body, you're you're too little. Like you can't handle this. Some would listen, some wouldn't. And it just felt like the longest night of my life, honestly. And and remember, I'm still battling my own demons. My friend just committed suicide. Like, I'm just going through a lot. So now it's time to leave the concert. And it's like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And we all pile up and get into, you know, a couple of cars and head back home. And I'm realizing that my older cousins are driving and they're they're shit-faced. 
and I'm the only sober one, which by the way, my mom had taught me to drive at an early age. And, um, I had, I just remember being in the front seat, begging my cousins to let me drive home because they were swerving all over the road. And I was like, oh my God, we're going to not, we're not even going to make it home. You know what I mean? Like, we're just not going to make it home. And I just remember the whole time praying to God that we made it safe because we were probably 30 or 40 minutes from home. And we got home that night and my mom had picked me up and I went home. She's like, oh honey, how did, did you have fun? And I was like, yeah, I just didn't want to talk about it. I went to bed and of course my older cousins groomed all of us and said, don't tell anybody that we let you guys drink, you know, big secrets. Don't tell anybody. And I remember pretty much not sleeping that night because I was pissed off that I ended up becoming the babysitter. I was pissed off. I was having to take care of everybody. And I, I ended up waking up the next day and I told my mom, we have to have a talk. We have to have a talk. And I told her what happened. And I was so mad at my older cousins that I told my mom, like, I just don't want to see him ever again. Like, I'm just done. I'm just done. And I'm going to be honest at this point, it was before drugs had really taken over my family, which is really strange for me to say, because I've been sober my whole life. And it's weird for me to look back now at my youth and see how involved my life was around drugs. Not, not necessarily with me personally, but that it just wrecked havoc and destroyed my family. Um, what ended up happening was I, I, I was the whistleblower, right? I was the whistleblower on all of the older cousins. I essentially told on all of them and they were pissed at me. They were going to bully me and make me pay for, you know, I should have been, you know, their words where I should have been grateful. Like, oh, if you ever want to party with us again, we're never going to let you like, we're never going to provide you like drugs and alcohol because, you know, you're, you're a snitch. You had to tell everybody what was going on yet. They weren't seeing the side of me that I had just suffered that entire night, literally being the mom of like seven little cousins. And it was like a miserable night for me. And I'm sitting thinking, I don't want to be at your, I don't want to party with you anyway. Like, I don't care, you know? But it, what would end up happening was over the years, the older cousins would coerce all of the younger cousins into hating me for the rest of my life. They would, I was black sheeped. I was, um, I mean, I was pretty much removed from the family at the age of 13. I was exiled from the family at the age of 13. And I don't think people understand what that does to a kid because this whole time I'm thinking like, what did I do wrong? You know, like I'm the sober one. I'm the one that's not dysfunctional. I'm the one that didn't drop out of school. Like why am I hated so bad? You know? And it would end up being a lifelong repetition of, uh, you know, all of my youth where every single one of my cousins absolutely hated my guts, absolutely hated my guts because they knew I wasn't going to put up with their generational trauma. I didn't, I didn't need to be under the influence in order to enjoy life. And they didn't like that about me at all. And, um, it would lead to other things. Like I ended up having some cousins that ended up switching into my high school and they started sleeping around 
with a lot of guys that were at my high school. And then it would get out that like, oh, I bet Crystal's easy too. So then pretty much all of these guys from my high school started to try to get me to go sleep with them. And it was like, no, 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 no. Like I I wasn't like that, you know? And then like, you know, they would do drugs and then everyone thought I was doing, it was just really bad. It was a really dark, dark time of my life that, and it, it was terrible. And then in the meantime, I tried to present my life to be as perfect as possible because I was doing everything I could to not be like them. I didn't want, I was, I, whatever they were, drugs, alcohol, whatever, you know, dropping out of school, sleeping around, whatever they did, I was going to do the exact opposite. I wanted to be absolutely nothing like any of them. And in turn, it would create this image from their mouths. Oh, must be nice to be Crystal. She's just perfect. She thinks she's just, she's a cheerleader and she's perfect and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And I was like, no, no, like, I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm just trying to not be like you, you know, but it was just the bullying that continued, um, from sort of every angle to the point where some of my cousins would bully me so bad that there would be fistfights break out. I would be at my aunt's house trying to mind my own business. And one of my cousins would come up to me and punch me in the face. And I was very fit and I was a cheerleader. So I was easily able to take, take people over because I was very fit and they were not fit. And then they'd get mad when they'd lose the fight, you know, and, but I wasn't a fighter. I was a lover. I wasn't a fight. I'm not the kind of personality that likes to fight people, but if you're going to come punch me in the face, I'm going to defend myself. And so it was just a lot of dysfunction, a lot of dysfunction. And in the meantime of that happening, I also had my mom who was constantly out rescuing my older cousins. So, you know, when you're talking about addiction and active addiction, clearly they have their own demons and their own trauma as we all do. And the way that they're dealing with their trauma is addiction through drugs. But when you start getting drugs involved, now you're getting drug dealers involved, you're getting meth labs involved, you're getting gangs involved, you're getting money owed involved, you're get, you're becoming a thief, you're, you're getting arrested for thievery, you're getting arrested for carjacking. And so my mom and her trauma is going back to her dad telling her on his deathbed she needed to always take care of her family. So my cousins were in and out of jail constantly, and my mom was the one always running around to bail them out, which was so crazy because they treated my mom terrible. They, they talked down to her. They treated her like crap. And my mom would continue to go. The, the second someone needed to be bailed out, they called my mom because they knew she had the money to get them out. And they knew that she would always come rescue them. And it, yes, was that enabling? Yeah, it was. But once again, that's that was her trauma, not mine to have to deal with. And in the meantime, while my mom is out running around trying to constantly rescue somebody that was in trouble, her attitude was, oh, Crystal's a good kid. She makes straight A's like she'll take, she's fine. She'll take care of herself. So in the, in turn, through my teenage years, I was emotionally and intellectually neglected. Um, because I couldn't understand as a teenager, 
if I am this quote, good kid that she tells everybody I am, I am making good grades. I'm trying to project this like quote, perfect image of the cheerleader and, and never getting in trouble with the law never doing anything wrong. How come I can't get my mom's attention the same way that my cousins get her attention because they are so dysfunctional and messed up. And it was this teeter totter that I remember always being on of thinking, which this goes back to the shadow work. Maybe if I was like a derelict and a screw up and on drugs, my mom would care about me more and she'd pay attention to me. Right. And, um, at the time I didn't know, you know, that was sort of what was happening. But once again, when I started dipping into my shadow work, I realized that I'd had some definite resentment towards my mom that I needed to undo. And it was because she was parenting me to the best of her ability. And she was walking around unhealed, putting off her trauma onto me. And I had to learn to forgive her and let that go and not hold on to it. And I'm glad I did because, you know, I even started that process of therapy in my early twenties, which you could technically say was the beginning of my shadow work. And I was able to start releasing that resentment. And then I was able to have a better and a more normal relationship with my mom. And, um, another thing, you know, kind of going back to my shadow work is when you are a sober person and you're watching your family, uh, with inactive addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs, um, you know, depending on the kind of drugs that people are on, it makes them very strange. Drugs change people and it makes them do very strange things. And I remember being like 14, 15 years old and my family and not, not my mom. Remember my mom was sober. My mom was always sober, but my cousin's saying like, oh, here's some meth, here's some drugs. And I look at them and they're like twitching or tweaking out. All of them lost all of their teeth. Meth makes you lose your teeth so fast. Like I'm talking like they're in their thirties and forties and at that time and they were missing all their teeth. They looked like they were 90 years old at 40. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, you think I want to do drugs when you look like that? And they would get so mad at me. And that's when they started being like, oh, you're so vain. You're so into yourself. You think you're so perfect. I'm like, why? Because I don't want to lose my teeth to meth, you know? And I guess looking back now, you know, they had separate trauma than me. Obviously they were part of my trauma. Um, but they, they, you know, they exonerated me from the family, um, for my entire life. And and going back to saying like, when drugs get involved, gangs get involved, gang activity gets involved. One of my cousins was on drugs one night and she got in a fight with my mom and she held a gun to my mom's head. And I thought she was going to kill my mom. And I think I was like 17 or 18 at the time when that happened, she was involved with like some heavy, heavy gang gang people. And I, I remember telling my mom, like, how can you be around these people? Like, I don't care if these are blood, like what, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you okay with being around these people? And, um, I told my mom when I turned 18 that I would never speak to any of them again. And I, I stood by that. I, I didn't like, I would see them sporadically over the years, but it was like once every four years, if that, um, But then when I turned 18, you know, I had originally planned to move to Los Angeles at 18 because I wanted to do fashion design and the plans just sort of fell through because I was finishing up cosmetology school. 
And in the same breath, um, my family was just diving deeper and deeper and deeper into addiction. It like, right when you think it got worse, it couldn't. And one of my cousins ended up, one of my older cousins ended up losing custody of all of her kids because she was busted in a meth lab. And all like there were five or six kids involved and all of them had different dads. So they all went like different directions, but the littlest was, um, they needed to find, needed to rehome her. They couldn't find her a home. And my mom had gotten on the phone with the SWAT team when, when they were busted for the meth and the SWAT team dropped off a baby at my front door because I was the only one that had my life together at such a young age. I had my own town home. I was working as a cosmetologist. I was driving a brand new Mustang. I was doing really, really well for myself. Um, which was also trauma because there had been two or three times in my youth of like the age between 13 to 16, maybe 17, somewhere in there where my mom had been bailing out my cousins out of jail so much that we went broke. We went broke. And it was hard for me because I was a kid. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you can't, I couldn't get a full-time job and make money. I was trying to finish school. And what ended up happening was my mom couldn't afford to pay rent anymore. And we ended up homeless a couple of times. And there were times that we had to sleep in our car. And then we ended up moving in with family until she got back on her feet. And I felt really helpless at that point because it was, and I was hiding all of this from everyone at school. Like I didn't want my friends to know the truth. I didn't want my friends to know that I was homeless. You know what I mean? And, and I was homeless for what? I was homeless because my mom was so worried about saving everybody in the family that she forgot to save me and she forgot to save herself. And that was more resentment that I had held against her for a while. Right? Like, why are you bailing them out of money to the point we don't, you're never going to get that money back. They're never going to repay you those funds. And you're rushing, you know, four hours away to bail them out of some like middle of nowhere, Colorado, because they got busted for drugs again. And I, it was just this repetitive cycle. And so what that ended up doing was causing me to become a workaholic. I became a workaholic because I was afraid to be homeless ever again. I never wanted to sleep in my car again. And I recognized in my 20s, I had this attitude of like, just work, work, work. Like, I don't care. Just work. Just bring the money in. I don't care. Like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And then I did that with YouTube, right? When I was building up YouTube, I got millions of views. And it was because I never took a rest day because I had this horrible fear I was going to be homeless again. And I was afraid something would fail again. And so my shadow work was wait a minute, it's okay to work hard and, and work for what you want, but the balance has to also be there. Because I was going the opposite direction where I was literally making myself physically sick from not taking a, a day off, not taking rest and not listening to my body. So shadow work is recognizing that there has to be balance on both sides, both light and dark have to be there. And you have to sort of recognize your trauma. And for, for that example, it's my mom, we ended up homeless a couple of times because my family was so dysfunctional. I was so scared to ever be homeless again that I became an overworker. And I had to learn that lesson of, no, that won't happen again. You're allowed to take a day off. 
Um, and going back to when I was like 18, 19, the SWAT team showed up at my door and I basically became the foster parent of a child that was not even able to say their ABCs. And I had fostered that child who was a family member for seven years. I fostered her for seven years and, um, I was in the process of adopting her before she went home, but the, um, the amount of stress that came on with that. So I was like 25 when she went home, which is so poetic because that was when I did paranormal challenge. So that was like literally like a old chapter closing and a new one opening sort of thing. I had custody of her for seven years and she called me mom. I was mom and it tore the family apart even worse because my family was in such bad delusion from their addiction that they thought I came in and took her from the family. That's not how it works. CPS gets involved. They Child Protective Services takes the kids because you're an unfit parent because you were busted in a meth lab. But it, it was like they were just so focused on living the narrative and the delusions that they had that I, I was becoming even more of an enemy to the family. I was becoming even more hated than I'd ever been before. And now they were mad because I was essentially raising this, this cousin as one of my own. And they were afraid that I was going to make her, um, you know, quote, perfect like me. And, uh, she wasn't going to be able to fall into addiction. And I did everything I could in my power to make sure that that didn't happen. But at the end of the day, it's not in my control. At the end of the day, it was not in my control. But I had trauma from that too, because when she went home and I, I had just ended a really bad relationship, I talk about this in my book, um, right before paranormal challenge happened, it was the worst relationship of my life. And I had lost a pregnancy with this person and I was not taking my birth control correctly. I was all over the place. Um, I ended up accidentally getting pregnant. I think it was, I think I was pregnant from having empty nest syndrome. The pregnancy was terrible. Um, I was you know, alerted to terminate the pregnancy because I was in the hospital getting blood transfusions and it ended up in a really terrible, terrible miscarriage. Um, and then six months later I was filming, well, no, it wasn't six months. It was about a year later I was filming for paranormal challenge. So I had a literal death and rebirth at that point in my life as well. Um, and that was the point when I knew that I was no longer legally bound to any of my family um, I was able to break free from them and I ended and ceased all communication with them. And I didn't realize how bad it had affected me. You know, like I, that was when I started doing shadow work. I started having these like flashbacks and memories of watching all of my cousins be intoxicated on drugs in the worst ways possible, tweaking out, twitching. Some of them were living under underground in tunnels in Denver. I would have to go in and get them out some of them had near-death experiences. I did have cousins that actually did overdose and die. And when you see that in your youth, it affects you as a person. It affects you as a person in a really big way. And, you know, going into my 20s and, and once I was sort of free from fostering um, my cousin at, at that early age, I wanted to just go be free. I wanted to go be free. I wanted to have fun because I'd been a stay-at-home parent and I hadn't even gotten pregnant. I was extremely resentful towards my family for a long time for that because I thought to myself, 
I never got pregnant. I didn't have a teen pregnancy scare, yet at 18, I was handed a child that I never gave birth to, had to teach her to walk, teach her her ABCs. And I felt like I really now missed out on my early 20s from, you know, 18 to 25 for seven years. I had missed out on some of my youth that I was never going to get back. I couldn't go out and be party and be reckless with my friends because I was at home taking care of somebody else's kid that was so dysfunctional. They got them removed because of drugs. And I just couldn't believe the reality that I was in. And my mom was really mad at me because I was like, I don't know how you can like talk to any of these people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how you even want any of these people in your life. Like I I can't stand any of them. Like drugs have wrecked havoc on their life. They've ruined their life. You know, we were enabling them at that point. Uh, we'd tried to do interventions. Nothing worked. You know, no one's going to get sober and clean until they're ready to get sober and clean. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of underlying, not only trauma, but mental health issues that they were all trying to, um, you know, uh, I guess suffocate by using substances. And I would get made fun of into my twenties by friends and family be like, Oh, you know, you don't want to like try drugs. I'm like, no, you don't know what I saw. You don't know what that did to me. You don't know what seeing the destruction of a family happens. Um, and it changes your life, it changes your output on life. Um, So when I got into Paranormal Challenge at 25, I hit the ground running. I was not going to let anything stop me, and I didn't. I moved to L.A. I started working for production companies. Nothing was going to stop me. Nothing, And nothing did stop me because I thought I had missed out on so much already from 18 to 25. Like I felt like I'd lived a really long, hard life already at that point. And the choices, I feel like, weren't even made on me. I, I held resentment towards some of my family members for many years for having to foster that child. Um, because I'm thinking like, if you were sober, you wouldn't have gotten your kid taken and it wouldn't have been my issue to have to deal with it, you know? And let me tell you, like those years of my life, like at first I was resentful for having a child that wasn't mine. I didn't think that I could say no because I was peer pressured into it from my family. Like, Oh, you have to take her. So she doesn't go into foster care was sort of the attitude. And I did it, but it was like, once again, like, I've had all of this tremendous responsibility on me since I was a child, since I was young and, and watching the dysfunction and downfall of my family. And I'm sick of it and I'm sick of it. And I think that's another thing. It's kind of funny with, this is like a random thought, but like with haters, why haters online don't, don't fathom or don't bother me in any capacity because like the first haters I ever experienced were my own blood. Imagine that. Imagine how hard that is to get through, you know, looking back, the trauma that I experienced with my family and seeing everyone, uh, you know, not be able to have sobriety in their life in any capacity. I think that it would have been a lot easier for me to fall in line and become a drug addict. I think that I was surrounded by it so much. I probably should have become a drug addict. Um, I should have been a nobody. Right. And that just tells you the strength. Once again, going back to the twin flame journey, once again, going back to the star seed journey, going back to the healer journey. When you have a very, very difficult life path, like I have had, and and I've had to witness tremendously difficult things from a very, very young age and have essentially chaos in the environment around me in the external environment, I had a very low probability of surviving it. And I came out better than better, more on top. And this isn't even fully my story. But going back to shadow work, when I first started that, I needed to heal some things from my mom and understand that 
she was just a child when she experienced her trauma and she never healed from it. And, you know, she did start to heal as she got older. I wanted to add a couple of very small, minute things in there. Overcoming the shadow work side with my mom, you know, any form of neglect that we experience as a child is still neglect. It's still technically abuse, right? Just because I wasn't experiencing physical pain, like being hit doesn't mean that my mother not being there for me emotionally and mentally was not still considered abuse. And what happens when a child experiences this, they come up with this core belief in their head, which I did, that I was just not good enough for anyone, you know, and this went well into my teens where, um, you know, my mom was like, oh, Crystal's fine. She can be at home. She can take care of herself. And when I had things that I needed help with, whatever that may be, maybe with school, maybe with cheerleading. Now, once again, she was still a helicopter parent and very involved. She always did my fundraisers for children, for cheerleading. Like she was always heavily, heavily involved. But when it came to anything sort of deeper than that, she was so exhausted from saving my family that she couldn't save me. So a lot of the times from 11 and up, I had to figure out how to deal with it on my own. And so I ended up coming up with this core belief in my system where I just didn't think I was ever going to be good enough for anyone. And this led me down a path of having some very destructive relationships because when you experience trauma like that, you know, and there's a puzzle piece missing and you weren't nourished correctly the way you should have been in an upbringing. I am an Aquarius moon and Aquarius moons are often known for having a placement where they face some sort of neglect with their parents, right? And I ended up getting in really toxic relationships and with men. And the problem was when I would find a guy that was normal, had his life together and was quiet it wasn't good enough for me because I was so used to the chaos and the upbringing that I was in. So that was something that I had to work on. Really, I started working on that in my 20s. But when I started doing shadow work, everything sort of made sense. So that is what shadow work is at its core. You're taking something that you're recognizing that is a red flag within yourself and saying, where did this stem from? And how can I fix it? And and what is the outcome? What am I doing to essentially self-sabotage myself because of the trauma that I experienced or growing up with some sort of missing piece of some of the nourishing that I needed. It's kind of similar to, and once again, there's always an exception. There's always exceptions. It doesn't mean everyone across the board, but I think that a lot of girls that are on OnlyFans or, you know, when they do get involved with, uh, you know, sugar daddies or older men, They may have been abused at some point um, at a young age by an older man, a man that they trusted, whether it was an uncle, a grandfather, or a father, and they were abused, assaulted, raped, what have you, and now to try to sort of take back control of the situation, they are open and willing to sell their body in some way or capacity in exchange for money, drugs, uh, you know, OnlyFans. And that makes them feel like they are more in control now. And that's why they are so easily able to share their private sexual desires in life with the world because they feel like it was taken from them at a very young age, right? Now, once again, there are exceptions. I'm not saying this is everyone across the board, but I think that that's where that trauma comes in and that trigger comes in where it's like, how can we heal from this? How can we fix it? And that takes accountability and it takes 
It takes you putting the work and the effort in. So I just wanted to splurt that in as a definition of sort of how I dealt with this. Another thing I talk a lot about, you know, my family sort of excluding me, making me the black sheep in the family, always saying, oh, you know, Crystal is, you know, she must be so perfect. Even to this day, like, oh yeah, she's millions of, you know, views on YouTube. She's like famous. And once again, just be so nice to be perfect like her. And so for a long time, I went around with a very heavy burden thinking like, what's wrong with me? And it was all because I didn't fit in with these people that had substance abuse. But rather than seeing like, no, no, they're the problem. Their trauma is the problem. I would blame myself and look inward and say, what did I do wrong to make everybody hate me so bad? And I carried that burden for a long, long time. And it took a long time for me to have to undo that and say, actually, I wasn't the problem. I was far from the problem. Although flipping the script on the extreme side saying I'm not I'm going to end up a square and I don't do drugs and I don't do any of this stuff to be like them is also trauma in itself going the extreme other direction right because I was doing everything I could in my power and my control to not be like them so once again it's like even to this day I fight this which is like I have I've had surgeries and stuff like that and I am deathly afraid to this day to even take pain pills after surgery because I have an underlying fear that I have the addictive gene in me, like my family. And I'm scared if I take pain pills after surgery, I'm going to end up an addict, which is unrealistic, right? Like I'm not an addict. I'm never going to be an addict. I've never been an addict. I've never touched drugs. But that's that extreme flip that I've done with my trauma because I want to make sure I'm nothing like them and never end up, you know, like they are on meth, on fentanyl, on all these problems, practically dying like a walking corpse. So what can I do to be the extreme opposite? Just like I told you guys that I became a workaholic after I became homeless with my mom. And it's really interesting, even with that being said, because after my mom died, you know, I, I made contact with all of her friends to let them know that she had passed away. And once again, this is an exception. There's not, not all of her friends were like this, but a majority of her friends I realized were extreme energy vampires. My mom was sort of this, uh, very bright light. She always saw the positivity in things, which on one side, it's really good to do that always and always see what the lessons are in that. But I really think that that, that you know, stemmed from her trauma at 13 with her dad dying. She had to take the positive out of it because she had to be quote, the strong one in the family. And the problem was, is that people didn't realize that privately, so publicly, she's dealing with all of her friends, a lot of them are energy vampires, so they only call her to help them fill up their cup. Anytime they're having a hard time or they're having a bad time, they call her and she was always the first one there in a snap to help them get back up and going, but they were never there for her. And they didn't know that privately, after she would help build all these people up, she was divided. She was battling some severe depression because she was surrounded by such extreme energy vampires. And I had to cut a lot of her friends off personally too that wanted to stay in contact with me because after her death, they looked at me like, "Oh, you're just like your mom. You sound just like her on the phone." we're going to now look to you like you're our next healing savior. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. That is not my path. I'm not taking that path. And a lot of them got aggressive and angry because they wanted to depend on me to mourn for my mother's death. And I was like, no, no, I don't just because I, I sound like her, just because I look like her 
does not mean I am her. I have strict boundaries in my life and I don't allow energy vampires in my life and I'm going to have to process her death and mourn it in my own private way and I cannot help fill your cup up and they got extremely aggravated, agitated, and mad at me for instilling boundaries because my mom never instilled boundaries with other people because to my mom, when she would instill boundaries with people, that meant you're being mean. And that's not true. That's not true. You are allowed to project, protect your energy. You are allowed to protect your peace. You are allowed to say no. It is a full sentence without explanation. And that took, that was another lesson that I had to learn into my twenties and thirties was, um, you know, early thirties was my mom didn't teach me boundaries with people. Didn't teach me to say no. And I think that's also what sort of, um, caused me to get, uh, you know, so bullied at school. I mean, there was my seventh grade year. I switched school. I was being bullied by one of my best friends. She was shoving my head in lockers and she was just really physically assaulting me. I tried to get her in trouble at school while her aunt, great aunt was the principal or like vice principal at our school. And so they took her side. She lied and said I was the one bullying her. So I ended up having to leave my middle school for seventh grade. I talk about this in my book. And on top of that, I was also facing being the black sheep of my family, outcasted by them. And then I'd had the friend that committed suicide. So when I switched to this other school that I had friends with, there were friends there that I knew, they also ostracized me. They didn't want anything to do with me. So I was actually eating lunch on the floor of the bathroom in seventh grade for my entire year of seventh grade, the second half of seventh grade. So, and that was, once again, I wasn't able to instill boundaries with people because my mom had taught me that anytime I needed emotional and mental support, it was too much for her to help me. She was already like full from my family. And in turn, that ended up making me resent my family for a long time because they would say stuff to me like, oh, Crystal, like, oh, it must be nice. Like, you're so perfect and your life is perfect. That was like their their famous quote, like, oh, Crystal thinks she's so perfect. She's a cheerleader and she doesn't do anything wrong and she doesn't do drugs and she doesn't get in trouble with the law. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, and you also all robbed me of my mother because she's too busy taking care of all of you and your dysfunctionalism. And then at the end of the day, she's not there to be able to help me emotionally and mentally. But they didn't see that side. They only saw their trauma. They only wanted to project their trauma. But at the end of the day, when it starts to come into shadow work, it's taking accountability. So I have to also take accountability for my part and no longer project onto them. Stop blaming them. Take accountability for what I can fix and understand that like I'm breaking all of those karmic ties with those people and I will not incarnate with them again. So shadow work gets really, really deep. Those little teeny triggers, why you tick, why you do things the way you do. I mean, I, I interact. So I'm a Aquarius moon, which we're going to do an astrology uh, chat next, but I'm an Aquarius moon in the eighth house. So the eighth house is representative of death Scorpio. So my Aquarius moon is oftentimes I interact like a Scorpio moon. I'm very private. I've been through a lot of trauma personally which is why I understand people that are Scorpio moons, you often have a lot of um, problems and trauma with your parents and not having them fulfill your emotional needs. But oftentimes, well, sometimes Scorpio moons will turn to substance abuse, sex addiction, 
to try to make up for the issues that they had with their parents, particularly with their mom, where my Aquarius moon was extremely rebellious. And I was like, no, I'm not going to turn to drugs like my family. I'm going to go the opposite direction and I'm a square. And if people portray me to be like this perfect person who doesn't do drugs, once again, my family as they're putting me down and bullying me through all these years, they didn't realize I was also fighting a severe, severe eating disorder from like the age of 11 till literally like 2018, right? Like I was literally fighting an um, eating disorders my whole life. And they didn't see that side though. They just saw me as, you know, they were also very jealous that they thought I had the perfect mom because they had such a disruptive family unit in their own life and their own trauma. So they were all very jealous wanting to have my mom as their mother. Um, and I'm sitting here thinking like my life's not perfect either. I just don't project onto other people and I don't talk about it. And I didn't realize how much trauma that I had to undo. And it's also sort of just accepting in the face value of, um, although you may not have been physically abused, it may not be like molestation or rape or, uh, you know, physically hit or beat the ramifications of, you know, mental neglect, emotional neglect, intellectual neglect can be just as burdening and bad as any other trauma that's experienced. Because especially when you're as a child, you know, you're still developing. And especially as a kid, like we're just programmed and wired as humans that when we are born into this world, we depend on our parents or our caretakers to take care of us and keep us safe. We don't understand in that moment that drugs are involved, like with my external family or alcoholism with my aunt. We don't understand that as kids. We don't understand that turmoil. All we understand is, well, I love my parents unconditionally no matter what. And no matter what happens, um, you know, now I'm changing the, the cycle and it turns into a karmic cycle where I say, I'm not good enough for others to be in a relationship with them. And now I have to figure out how to undo that because I've had all of these traumatic, toxic, karmic relationships. And that is exactly what goes into the next piece, which is karmic relationships. Have you ever been with a person where it was like you break up for like, you know, two months, a year, and then you get back together and it's like trauma. And then you break up and you get back together and it's trauma that is a karmic relationship. And that is a perfect example of the really terrible relationship that I was in um, before I was on Paranormal Challenge. I was with this guy for a few years. We ended up having a really, we had a pregnancy and then it was the pregnancy failed, which on the other side of it, thank God the pregnancy failed so that I'm not attached to him for, you know, the remainder of my human life. But that's the positive side of it, right? But we would break up and have really toxic, toxic fights, toxic relationship, horrible. And then we'd let go. And, but there was something always drawing us back. We couldn't let go. And then a year would go by and we couldn't let go and we'd come back. And it was, it came down to, we were both very, um, unhealed humans. And we were both looking for one another to fill, fill our cups up. I needed him to fix me and he needed me to fix him. And I think we truly believed in our heart of hearts that that would happen rather than facing our own trauma and our own dark night of the soul whether that be substance abuse, sex addiction, gambling, like whatever, if addict with me, it was, you know, controlling my food intake and, you know, it causing, you know, severe problems as far as, um, 
digestion issues. I mean, I think part of the reason I had to have my gallbladder removed was because of my eating disorders, because I was so yo-yoing back and forth. And I'd go from just eating tons of terrible, terrible junk food to restricting myself for weeks and weeks at a time. And I think my organs were literally shutting down. And the first one to go was my gallbladder, right? So you will end up having, you know, possibly physical ramifications of the trauma if you don't heal it. I, you know, that goes back into even Dolores Cannon saying, if you hold on to trauma and you don't heal yourself and you just keep ending up in the same relationships over and over and over and the karma just keeps going and going and going, eventually it's going to make your body physically sick. You're going to get sick. You're going to have problems with, you know, your organs and you're going to have to take medication. It could even turn into something dark like cancer or organ failure because you're holding on to all this dark, bad energy. You need to let it go. You need to heal it and you need to let it go. So anyway, that's um, sort of my shmeal. Let's get back to the podcast. But, you know, she ended up moving to Las Vegas with me. And it was the first time in her life that she was away from my toxic dysfunctional family. And she didn't know how to handle it. She had literally taken care of my family their entire lives. Every time someone needed anything at the drop of a hat, she was there. And it was the first time in her life that she could just move to Las Vegas and just be happy doing nothing. And she was miserable. She was miserable. She was so used to the chaos. She was so used to the chaotic people and, and constantly needing people to save that she didn't know how to save herself, which is another example how important shadow work is and, and remembering that path of you can't save anybody. You can only save yourself. You cannot help anyone through their trauma. It has to be a, a choice to get through the trauma or not to get through the trauma, which is also why I, I tell people like, don't feel bad for me about what I've been through because I don't feel bad for myself. I, I look back and feel empowered. I'm like, wow, I, I went through a lot at a young age. I was surrounded by some really dark things that kids should not be surrounded by like gangs and drugs and drug activity and theft and death, a lot of death from overdosing. And I got through it and I got through it. So I look at it as an empowered vibe um, rather than, and, and look at the generational curses that I've broken. Like, like it stops with me. It stops with me. It's I, I'm not having active addiction. I've never had active addiction. I will not be passing that trauma, you know, onto my kids. I'm not holding on to anxiety, depression, anger, or fear from the trauma that I've experienced so that I pass it on to them. You know, it's not going, I'm, I'm, I have chosen personally to get off of the wheel of karma and to completely halt the generational trauma that goes on in my side of the family. And it's still continuing. I don't, I don't speak to anyone on my mom's side of the family, not a soul. Well, not, um, I just don't because, um, the trauma is still there and I choose to live my life happy and free from it. I even look back at, you know, some of my mom was definitely a healer. She had a very high life path number. Her life path was 33. And I laugh because a lot of people are like, oh my God, your mom was like the best mom ever. Like my mom was the kind of mom that like all of my friends wanted to come to my house because she was the best mom. She always cooked. She always did over and above. If we went to the movies, she paid for everything. Like she was the desired mom that everybody wanted to have. But they didn't realize that she was so busy pouring into my entire family's cup that she barely had anything left to pour into mine. And I only saw, you know, my mom privately fought depression. 
But on the public side of it, no one would have ever guessed it. Nobody would have said that your mom has depression or, or anything like that. And it was because she was constantly pouring her cup out into everyone else and trying to help everybody else. And I had to partially raise myself alone, essentially. Um, but I had to forgive her for it. You know what I mean? Like, that's part of the shadow work is understanding, like, I, do, I love her. She's my best friend. I am traumatized without her here. I'm so happy that, you know, she was here in Vegas for, you know, the last 10 years for me to be with her. I would have been so upset if this would have happened in Colorado and I couldn't have been with her. So we got to spend, you know, a really good amount of time together and reacquaint and sort of make up for lost time for when I was, you know, an adolescent and she was having to care for everyone else in the family. I don't hold resentment towards her for that because that was just genuinely her path. That was what she was supposed to do. And remember, I incarnated knowing that that was going to happen. I incarnated knowing that I was going to have to come out from this on the other side, but it's a choice, right? Like I could have easily fallen in line with my family's addiction easily. I mean, I've had family die from both alcoholism and drugs. Um, it could have easily happened, but I, I chose to not, not be a part of it. I chose to not be a part of it. I, it's weird because when I was in my youth, I liked being the black sheep of the family. Like at first I would get bothered when my cousins would say stuff to me like, oh, you know, must be nice to look like Gwen Stefani be a cheerleader. You just think your life's so perfect and you don't sleep around and you don't do drugs and you don't drink and oh, it must be nice to be perfect. And at first that would bother me. But then after hearing it for a while, I was like, yeah, I guess it must be nice to be me. And they didn't like that I was comfortable and confident being the black sheep. And, I, and in, in my perspective, I did not look at it as, oh, I'm perfect. In fact, I thought I was far from perfect. Remember, I'm privately fighting a freaking eating disorder here, right? They didn't know that though. They just saw this image on the outside, which goes back to being a star seed and a high vibrational energy that incarnates here because when you are on your path and you're sure of it, and at that time it was just stay sober, right? Go to school, finish school, like don't do drugs. That was really my only path. But I was so high vibrational. I was irritating everyone's demons around me. I was pissing off everyone's demons around me. And I still do that to this day. I will make friends. And if they show me their demon side, I'm like, oh, well, like, you know, and they ask me like how to heal from like, yeah, you should, you should heal from that. You shouldn't like, it's heavy, like put that down. Ooh, that light, that, that pisses them off. And that's how I lose friends so easy because they're like, how can you act like it's so easy? Like, it's not even that, you know, like you're acting like it's so easy. I'm like, if, if the baggage is heavy from the trauma you've experienced, put it down. It's really not that hard. You don't have to do it. Make the choice. And, and I've always, always my whole life triggered people's demons. And when friendships end, I'm always, you know, the bad guy, which I'm, I'm fine with it at this point. Like fine. Because I didn't say you should be comfortable in your trauma and not take accountability. I'm, I'm the kind of person that's all about taking accountability. Take accountability for yourself. Take about accountability for the energy output that you put in. What you put out is what you get back. And people don't like to take accountability, especially unhealed people. And that's going to trigger them. That's going to trigger them really, really bad. And that goes back to living your life extremely authentic. I mean, I've done some strange things in my life. 
television producer, trying to get Ghost Girl Diary signed, been on YouTube. Now I'm doing fashion and makeup. Nothing is stopping me. I have a podcast with hundreds of thousands of downloads. Like no shame here. I'm, you know, one thing that I was hiding for a long time was that I was goth. And I've talked about this before. And the reason I was hiding that I was goth was because I know that there's a big community online that gatekeeps people that are goth. Like, oh, you only have to listen to goth music or, oh, you should have been goth in your youth. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I was alt in my youth. You know what I mean? And so I didn't want to come out and say I was goth. I was in the goth closet, if you will, because I was afraid of being judged. But I went back to the other side and I looked and I was like, no, you have to be your authentic self. And guess what? I'm still triggering people. I am still triggering people. And I get once in a while the haterade comments of people being like, oh yeah, you think this is goth, blah, 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 whatever. I don't care. That's 3D. And that's once again, going into shadow work. When you've really gone on a healing journey, understand this. It's never going to be fully complete, but you're going to start visually understanding that the world around you is much different than it used to be. I am no longer stuck in the 3D. I visualize everything like from a 5D perspective. Like let's even take, for example, um, let's talk about racism. In my opinion, racism is a generational curse. You know, like so many people get mad, like, oh, you're transphobic or, you know, you hate black people or whatever else. We need to change that. We need to fix that. We need to forcefully fix that. That is a generational curse. I'm not saying it's okay. It's terrible. I do not agree with racism in any capacity whatsoever. However, most of the time, that is something that has been ingrained and indoctrinated in those people for generations and generations and generations. And there has to be somebody that comes out as a curse breaker to say, hey, no, this isn't right. Eternal love. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter what you identify as. We should all love each other, which honestly, it shouldn't be that hard for people, but it's a generational curse. It's a generational curse. And if they're not ready to break that curse, they will probably have to incarnate as a trans person next life or as that skin color next life, because that's the law of karma. That's the wheel of karma. What you put out is what you will have to get back. You will have to give that energy back that you put in. You will have to experience your life as an African-American, if you're going to project that type of energy onto those people in this lifetime. And that's why shadow work is so important in healing, not only your own personal shadow, but the generational trauma that your family has experienced. But it's a very personal journey and not everyone's going to take that path. Not everyone's going to want to, to heal those things. But I, I'll tell you what, it's been a lot of work and I've been doing it for years. And now that I'm on the other side of it, oh my God, I don't, I don't regret it at all. I don't regret it. I, like shadow works hard because you're digging deep, right? Like every time a trigger comes up, you have to face that trigger. Why is that trigger happening? What's going on? How, why am I feeling this way? And really good um, visualization for you to see people that have extreme trauma. that They are living in um, the, the karmic wheel or the wheel of psych, uh, uh, the karma, karma wheel of life is 90 day fiance. I love that show. That's one of my favorite shows. But if you watch these people, you will see how bad and unhealed they are. And what ends up happening is you try to find love from all of the places you feel empty in someone else rather than filling up your own cup and nourishing yourself and healing yourself. You're never going to get that 
you know, whatever want, desire, need healing from somebody else, you're never going to find it. And what's going to end up happening is you're going to get two very unhealed people together. And then they're going to project their traumas onto each other and their insecurities onto each other. And then it just ends up blowing up and exploding. You can't live in your trauma. And trust me, I'm one to say that my mom was murdered, right? Like I can't live in my trauma. You cannot project your trauma onto other people. It is not their fault. You went through that trauma. When you become an adult, doesn't matter what happened to you as a kid. It is your responsibility to unf yourself. Period. You have a choice now. You are your, you are an adult. You are in control now. So how are you going to unf the trauma that you've experienced? And going back to 90 Day Fiance, there's um there's two Gino and I can't remember who his girlfriend is, but she's in Colombia. But the other day she was crying. They were in therapy and she was saying, I don't like when Gino turns me down when we're trying to be intimate because he knows that I have abandonment issues from my dad. So she's she's saying I have abandonment issues from my dad. And when you turn me down in intimacy, it makes me feel like my dad when he left me again. Heal that so that you don't keep attracting unhealed people and they just can't get on the same page. You know what I mean? Like that's what's so important with shadow work is once you've done shadow work and you've healed, you trigger people around you or you find other healed people so that you're all on the same wavelength and you sort of step into a new reality. Because why, why do you want to keep reliving your trauma over and over again? That's exhausting. I'm tired. I mean, it's crazy because, you know, going into even my mom's side, you know, she was murdered. She was technically, the nurse injected her on December 29th of 2022, no, 2021. And she was on life support until January 17th of 2022. And so technically it's been like a year and a half since her death. Right. And it was traumatic. She was killed. Like she was intentionally injected and murdered. Um, she, this woman had the intent to kill. Like I could, I could even forgive somebody if it was like an accidental drunk, drunk driving incident because it's not like this person vengefully hit the car, right? Like this person made a bad choice, got wasted, hit the car and, and killed my mom. No, no, this nurse had an intent to kill my mom. She came for her. You know what I mean? And I was like, how am I going to heal from this? I ended up finding this nurse on TikTok and she has like, I think a million followers or something really high. Her name's Nurse Hadley, H-A-D-L-E-Y. And she's a hospice nurse and she talks about her patients crossing over. She has helped me heal from my mom's trauma and she doesn't even know it because I realized that not all nurses are bad. That was the shadow work that I had to work, right? I don't trust medical professionals now. I don't trust nurses, especially nurses. They like to play God, right? Especially nurses that are like nurse, nurse hatchet, right? They want to take your life. This, so my point of this with shadow work is when you're trying to find ways to heal, it's amazing what the universe and your spirit guides will bring into your life to help you heal. I would have never thought that this random nurse named Nurse Hadley was going to help me heal from my mom's death because it was so traumatic. And it's something that I'm probably going to fight for the rest of my life. But it's crazy because I've talked to other survivors of murderers. I've talked to other victims that have experienced their parents or family being murdered by someone. And they look at me and like, oh my God, a year and a half, like, holy crap, like, look how far you've come. Like I'm, you know, th there's one woman I met, it was like 10 years since her husband had been killed and she is just so depressed. She can't even take care of her kids. Essentially her in-laws take care of her children. But she's like, how did you heal? how did you get past it? It's a choice. It's a choice. You can choose. And it's, it's so distraught and it's so sad when people die, but like, 
if you could see what I see on the other side, which is your family that's crossed over is right here right now. They just, you just can't see them because we're in such a dense, heavy 3D planet. You can't see them, but they are here right now. I can guarantee you right now, as I'm speaking, that my spirit team is standing behind me and my mom's next to me. Trauma is a choice and you don't want to live your remaining remainder years on this planet without being healed and break the cycles, break the karmic cycles because I'm tired. You're tired. It makes it so much easier when you're not carrying that baggage around. And, um, I hope I gave you some good enough examples of how to heal, you know, shadow work, but it's, it's really a personal journey and I can't answer it for you, but I will tell you this. Once you start putting out to the universe that you want to heal and you want to work on certain things, you will get answers. I am 150% better than I was a year and a half ago and healing from my mom's murder because it's been a choice. It's been a choice. Healing and shadow work is a choice, but in order to bring in your manifestations, your affirmations, to live in your highest reality, to live in your highest timeline, shadow work has to be done. You have to shed all of this heavy garbage and baggage that we incarnated with, whether it's from previous generations or from trauma that we experienced ourselves and turn your pain into power and get rid of it. You don't need to carry it anymore. It's heavy. Okay. That's going to conclude this podcast. I'm going to come back again next week. Um, with another couple of podcasts. I want to do one for um, like fashion and being, uh, you know, doing my sort of influencer stuff. Talk about kind of some of the experiences that I've had. And I want to talk about aliens at some point. So we'll do that. So make sure you guys please subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, please follow us and support us on the YouTube channel. Give us a thumbs up, leave us comments, support in any way you can. And as always, I will catch you guys next time. Thank you guys. Good night. 